Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The separation of church and state has not denied the political realm a religious dimension. Although matters of religious belief, worship, and association are considered to be strictly private affairs, there are, at the same time, certain common elements of religious orientation that the great majority of Americans share. These have played a crucial role in the development of American institutions and still provide a religious dimension for the whole fabric of American life, including the political sphere. This public religious dimension is expressed in a set of beliefs, symbols, and rituals that I am calling the American Civil Religion. The inauguration of a president is an important ceremonial event in this religion. It reaffirms, among other things, the religious legitimation of the highest political authority. Robert N. Bella. American civil religion borrows so heavily from the language and cadences of traditional faiths, many Americans see no conflict or distinction between the two. Many Americans equate dying for their country with dying for their faith. In America's civil religion, serving country can be co-equal with serving God. The locus of American civil religion is not the church or the synagogue or the mosque. Rather, it is the state— which uses sacred symbols of the nation for its own purposes and perpetuation. Harry S. Stout This is CJ, your Renaissance man, in this particularly dark hour of the New Dark Age, recording this on the eve of one of the most sacred days of the American civil religion, Election Day 2016, yet again, Turd Sandwich versus Giant Douche. And here I am racked this evening with depressing doubt that none of my preferred candidates, not Giant Meteor, not Cthulhu, not Vermin Supreme, not even the greatest candidate of all, nobody. I truly do believe if nobody wins, it'll be better for everybody. None of my preferred candidates look like they're likely to win, so I figured I'd commiserate with you and share some of my thoughts on the insanity of all this crap that's around us. Watching the giant national cult in America completely lose its shit all around me has really gotten me thinking lately about the religion of the state and politics that so many Americans just seem to be completely subsumed in. And so as a result of this, I decided to do an episode talking a bit about this topic. So this is Dangerous History Podcast episode 124, Election Day 2016 special, The American Civil Religion. But first, I've got a bunch of thank yous to send out. First off, my Patreon shoutouts. Big thanks to Matthew, Ross, Ari, Chad, and Paul. Thank you all very much for helping to support the Dangerous History Podcast by stepping up with a per-episode donation over at patreon.com slash profcj. Just as a reminder to everybody, if you sign up there to support the show at a dollar per episode or more, You will have access to special bonus episodes at Patreon, and in addition, 
you'll be eligible to join the Facebook group, Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. Although, again, reminder, if you apply to join the group and the name you are under on Facebook is not the same as the name you are under on Patreon, please message me to let me know. Because otherwise, I don't know who you are, I don't see your name as a Patreon donor, I won't let you in. And in addition to that, thanks, I also have thanks to express to a number of people for cool stuff from my Amazon wish list. So thanks go to Kent for ordering me America's Counter-Revolution, the Constitution Revisited by the great Sheldon Richman. Thanks to Jason for ordering me Dallas 63 by Peter Dale Scott on Kindle in that case. Thanks to Brian for ordering me the book This Republic of Suffering, Death and the American Civil War by Drew Gilpin Faust. And also thanks to Brian for ordering me Tariffs, Blockades, and Inflation, The Economics of the Civil War by Mark Thornton and Robert Eklund. Obviously, again, some subtle messages that some people want me to get on with the Civil War series, but I'm really trying to do it right. So it's a monumental task. Also, thanks to John for ordering me Civilians in a World at War, 1914 to 1918, by Tammy Proctor. And also, thanks to John, I think it came in a separate box without a note, but it arrived along with Civilians in a World at War. Thanks also to John for the book Spooked, How the CIA Manipulates the Media and Hoodwinks Hollywood by Nick Shaw, a book I've been very interested to read ever since I heard about it a month or so ago. And anyone else listening, if you've got some money or some Amazon credit or whatever burning a hole in your pocket and you just don't know what to do with it and you already own everything cool in the world, and you're a fan of the show and want to help me out, please consider possibly ordering me something off my wish list, which I typically link to in the show notes for episodes. And if anyone's listening to this soon after this episode is released and you want to really do me a solid, the thing that, as of this recording, is currently at the top of my DHP wish list. It is the Fit UE's, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right, monitor stand and riser, laptop stand, tabletop, desktop, TV, height adjustable, etc. It's a little table that goes on top of a desk or table and can raise a monitor or something else up a bit off the table. If anyone is looking to do me a solid, please feel free to order that for me. And you'll know if someone else has or not if you go to the wish list and the thing is still there at the top. But anyway, that's something I think will be a big help in my home studio setup. And I'm strapped on cash at the moment, otherwise I would just get it myself. So anyway, as always, thanks to anyone who helps out this show in any way. I greatly appreciate it. Now, on to our discussion of the American civil religion. Dave Smith, the comedian and host of the podcast Part of the Problem, which I really like, it's about the only current event sort of a podcast that's from a strong libertarianish anarchist perspective. Dave Smith, on part of the problem, has repeatedly made the point that others have made as well. He's not the first to point this out, but I think he does a good job in his way explaining it. The point that all of the ceremony and the pomp and circumstance and pageantry and special effects and all of the special rituals and recitations and so on of American politics is really needed precisely to distract from what the system really is, from what the state really is and what's really going on. People with ideas that are good and true and self-evident and logical and so on don't really need all the bells and whistles and smoke and mirrors and mantras and dogmas to make their point. And I think he's dead right, and I think that the majority of mainstream Americans, whether they're of nominally the left or the right, whether they also happen to be religious in the conventional, traditional sense of the word or not, are pretty far gone drinking the Kool-Aid of the American civil religion. Now, I just want to make a disclaimer in case you've not heard me speak on religion before. My intention here is not to get off into the weeds and render a verdict on conventional or traditional religious faiths one way or the other. I personally am not a believer in any faith or any supernatural concept of any type, but if you believe in such things, but you also believe in things like human freedom and self-ownership, and something along the lines of the non-aggression principle, and therefore you don't believe you have any right to force your beliefs or preferences on others, then I really don't have any beef with you. And in fact, I've said this before, I'll say it again, I'd rather have a theistic anarchist as a neighbor than an atheist statist, or as some have called them, a state theist. 
I know I have many people of many different religious beliefs in this audience, and I appreciate all of you as listeners and in some cases as supporters of the show. And my gripe here is not with religion per se. It's with the whole idea of the government co-opting religious idioms and techniques and so on in order to give itself a greater veneer of legitimacy and transcendence, etc. And I really think that this state of affairs should be extremely off-putting and should offend you equally, regardless of what, if any, religious beliefs you may possibly have. So, what is a civil religion? Very interestingly, I think, and revealing perhaps, the first philosopher to use the actual term civil religion and talk about this stuff was the ultra-hardcore statist Jean-Jacques Rousseau, whose writings later became treated literally as sacred scripture. About a generation or so later, to extreme revolutionary statists like Maximilien Robespierre in revolutionary France. In The Social Contract, which is his most famous and influential work, Rousseau argued that society, in his opinion, needed a civil religion that would give the state a sense of sacredness in the eyes of the people. And Robespierre and the Jacobins would try to do just that with the cult of the supreme being, which was a bizarre thing that they tried to get going in revolutionary France and that just never really took hold, to put it mildly. By contrast with that, America's civil religion hasn't really tried to start a wholly brand new religious tradition. Instead, what it's done is it has borrowed from and blended with and so on. Lots of different elements of regular traditional religions, primarily Christianity, of course, and to a lesser extent Judaism and and a few other things. But it does so in such a way that it has grafted itself almost seamlessly in the minds of most Americans onto these pre-existing beliefs and archetypes and tropes and so on of religion. And it has mostly been so successful in this that the vast majority of mainstream Americans, whether liberal or conservative, whether conventionally of religious faith or not, do subscribe to at least some version of the American civil religion. And is evidence of just how effective this has been. Witness how many Americans who are self-proclaimed deists or agnostics or even atheists who worship the state and participate in its rituals and behave in exactly the same fashion as a devout member of a conventional faith, and who, of course, vehemently attack anyone who seriously questions any of their bedrock presuppositions. So this has been a massive thing in American life, and I know other countries currently or in the past have had versions of the civil religion. You could argue that Rome, ancient Rome, had a version of it, and that many other modern countries have as well. But I think at the, at the current moment that the United States arguably has the most overwhelmingly powerful and still believed by a lot of its population civil religions in the world, and that it is in many cases, totally disconnecting people from reality. And I think it'd be tough to argue that the American brand of civil religion hasn't been important throughout much of American history. But American scholars didn't really start thinking and writing about this concept and applying it to America's past and present in any sort of an explicit way until the sociologist Robert Bella wrote an article in 1967 entitled Civil Religion in America, published in the journal Daedalus. And by the way, I will link to the full text of this article on the show notes for this episode over at DangerousHistoryPodcast.com. And I'll link to a bunch of other cool stuff, too, that's either related to stuff I'm talking about or at least related to the concept of civil religion or to the whole notion of elections. So in the external links for the show notes in this episode, I'll be linking to, besides the Bella article the classic George Carlin bit on why he doesn't vote, which, if you've not seen that, you really need to watch it. I'll also be linking to a really excellent version of Bob Dylan singing his song With God on Our Side, which is one of my favorite Bob Dylan songs, and which really illustrates, in a kind of sardonic way, the civil religion of the United States, at least as of the mid-20th century, and I would argue it's only gotten worse since then. And also, just in case you're male and you're still considering voting, there's one more reason not to besides the fact that it doesn't accomplish anything worthwhile and 
is arguably not a moral act, it can also potentially drop your testosterone. That's right, if you vote for a candidate and that candidate loses, Scientific American showed about seven years ago that it'll drop your testosterone level. Now, as far as I know, there are no studies on what happens to your testosterone if you don't vote at all, but I don't know, personally, I feel like a bull shark ever since I stopped voting. And if you don't know what bull sharks have to do with testosterone, you can just Google bull shark testosterone and find out. So anyway, I always try to link to some cool stuff in, in every episode as much as possible, but this one I think I've really got some cool stuff, even by comparison. Anyway, the heyday of the first wave of scholarship on this whole idea of civil religion in America, much of it was sociological and also somewhat in the realms of political science and history, but the heyday of this scholarship really occurred over the course of about a decade between the publishing of Bella's article and the American Bicentennial in 1976. And since then, it's really dropped off as a topic. There certainly have been other articles and books examining it, both historically and in regard to current events, but it just hasn't been a major topic of interest. However, again, given the current insanity of this cult, around those of us who don't believe in it and who happen to be living on the dirt in between the pieces of dirt known as Canada and Mexico right now. And let's face it, this has been for nearly two years, this never-ending campaign of 2016. Because of all this insanity, I really felt it would be an opportune time to talk about this a bit on this show. So let's talk a bit about the origins of American civil religion. And a lot of the earliest seeds of this can be traced back to the New England Puritan colonists. And it's interesting how many things that are bad in kind of American history and American culture you can say that about, right? That you could say, oh, yeah, you can ultimately trace the seed of it back to the, to the Puritans. So yet another thing we can trace back to that. And if you want one key document, but there are certainly many others you could look at, the speech by John Winthrop entitled A Model of Christian Charity in which he referred to the Puritan colony as, quote, a city upon a hill, end quote, that he thought would serve as a beacon and would redeem the world. And America has really, in a lot of ways, had a messiah complex, or, if you want to be a little bit less charitable about it, a narcissism and delusions of grandeur complex ever since, at least many Americans. However, the grandiosity of these Puritan ideas was limited by the decentralized nature and the localism of America in the colonial period. And besides, the Puritans were only dominant in New England, and much of the rest of British North America flat out didn't share their same ideas of religion and of some sort of divine mission and so on. Then the War of Independence started to flesh out a truly national civil religion a little bit more, as did some other early events in the American Republic post-independence, such as the writing and ratification of the Constitution. But still, the civil religion remained much, much more limited of a thing, with much less pull amongst the masses than anything that we're used to. It's true that most Americans still had very little direct contact with the federal government beyond voting every few years and occasionally using the Postal Service. But the American civil religion really got a major amplification and really came into its own as we know it as a result of the so-called American Civil War, as brilliantly covered by Harry Stout in his book Upon the Altar of the Nation, A Moral History of the American Civil War, which I'm sure I'll refer to a zillion times in my upcoming Not-So-Civil War series. This is what Harry Stout says about this, quote, In 1860, no coherent nation commanded the sacred allegiance of all Americans over and against their states and regions. For the citizenry to embrace the idea of a nation-state that must have a messianic duty and command one's highest loyalty would require a massive sacrifice, a blood sacrifice, end quote. So that was a huge part of it, and of course the cult of Lincoln is all wrapped up in that, more on that later. And then it kind of faded a little bit during the so-called Gilded Age, though it never went back to what it was prior to the Civil War, sort of a version of the, the famous ratchet effect there. And then after that it got reamplified yet again in the late 19th and early 20th century progressive era, as the progressives really very deliberately and consciously sought to build the civil religion much further than it had ever been. And you can see this quite clearly in a lot of the writings and speeches of a lot of the progressive intellectuals 
And it was in the progressive era, give or take, that a lot of the key elements of the American civil religion as we know it came to be or were at least begun. So, for example, the Pledge of Allegiance was written in 1892, and it was in subsequent decades that it became something that almost every schoolchild in America had to say. The Lincoln Memorial, one of the cultiest things in Washington, D.C., was begun in 1914 and completed in 1922. And the practice of putting dead politicians on coinage, which was a new thing in America, which you could argue is idolatry of dead politicians, also began during this time period in 1909 with the very first, not coincidentally, the Lincoln Penny. And of course, especially the speeches of Woodrow Wilson are just dripping with messianic messages about America redeeming the world and all that kind of stuff. And Mount Rushmore was begun in 1927, perhaps a little bit after the heyday of the original progressive era, but clearly in the same spirit, and definitely, I think, something you couldn't imagine the U.S. government beginning prior to the coming of progressivism to the political scene. Of course, the massive mobilization for World War II depended very heavily on playing to the kind of pre-propagandized American people using all the right themes and keywords and so on. And then the war itself and all the great spirit of sacrifice and so on greatly amped up civil religion in America and the deification of the greatest generation and the nostalgia for World War II have been important parts of this theology ever since then. FDR has become pretty much a demigod to just about all Democrats and even many Republicans see him as a quote unquote great man and great president. Other presidents since FDR are more debatable. A lot of people like Kennedy, in part because he had the good luck for his reputation of getting assassinated. And of course, many Republicans now are pushing hard to make Ronald Reagan into another quote-unquote great president. Facts be damned. And it's very important to keep in mind, and I'll probably mention this again at some point in this episode, that the cult of the presidency plays a very major role in the American civil religion, both whoever the current president happens to be and also the past presidents, especially the allegedly great ones. Robert Linder wrote this in a 1996 article published in the Journal of Church and State about the roles American presidents play in the civil religion. Quote, Throughout American history, the president has provided leadership in the public faith. Sometimes he has functioned primarily as a national prophet, as did Abraham Lincoln. Occasionally he has served primarily as the nation's pastor, as did Dwight Eisenhower. At other times he has performed primarily as the high priest of the civil religion, as did Ronald Reagan. In prophetic civil religion, the president assesses the nation's actions in relation to transcendent values and calls upon the people to make sacrifices in times of crisis and to repent of their corporate sins when their behavior falls short of the national ideals. As the national pastor, he provides spiritual inspiration to the people by affirming American core values and urging them to appropriate those values and by comforting them in their afflictions. In the priestly role, the president makes America itself the ultimate reference point. He leads the citizenry in affirming and celebrating the nation, and reminds them of the national mission, while at the same time glorifying and praising his political flock. End quote. I've long thought that the shepherd metaphor for leadership, by the way, is always very interesting and revealing. And not just because it implies that the people are sheep, but also because you've got to ask yourself the question— why does a shepherd, even a good one, perhaps especially a good one, tend to his flock? It's not because he's just a kind animal lover. It's because he doesn't want other predators to exploit his flock, because he wants to be the one to do it himself. So, I want to talk a little bit more about how the cult of the U.S. government and U.S. politics and so on is, in my opinion, a religion. First, a little bit of definition-type stuff. Here are the first couple of paragraphs under the term religion in Wikipedia. Quote, religion is a cultural system of behaviors and practices, worldviews, sacred texts, holy places, ethics, and societal organization that relate humanity to what an anthropologist has called an order of existence. Different religions may or may not contain various elements, ranging from the divine, sacred things, 
faith, a supernatural being or supernatural beings, or some sort of ultimacy and transcendence that will provide norms and power for the rest of life. Religious practices may include rituals, sermons, commemoration or veneration of God or deities, sacrifices, festivals, feasts, trances, initiations, funerary services, matrimonial services, meditation, prayer, music, art, dance, public service, or other aspects of human culture. Religions have sacred histories and narratives which may be preserved in sacred scriptures and symbols in holy places that aim mostly to give a meaning to life. Religions may contain symbolic stories, which are sometimes said by followers to be true, that have the side purpose of explaining the origin of life, the universe, and other things, end quote. Now, how much of that stuff that I just read to you can you see in the American government and the way that people think of it and interact with it? And one thing that is only briefly mentioned in that passage I just read you that I don't think is emphasized quite enough in that sort of definition or introduction to the term religion is the concept of faith, meaning that one's beliefs are based on things other than just reason and evidence alone. Now, again, if someone just has a belief on whether or not they think there's a supreme being or whether or not they think there's an afterlife or something like that, that doesn't in and of itself threaten my or yours or anyone else's rights. But when you're in the realm of the state and politics and so on, by definition, you are in the realm of force and coercion. And so all of these things take on a much more sinister cast, because now it's no longer just your opinion on these sorts of questions. It's now, by definition, about trying to force the preferences of some onto the lives of others. So let's walk through some things that were mentioned by that passage from Wikipedia and some things that maybe were not, and just briefly mention some ways that we can see these things in the cult of the U.S. government. Dogmas. In other words, bedrock beliefs and principles that you just have to accept and that you're not allowed to challenge or anything like that. We could all probably come up with many dogmas regarding the American government and the American system. America's the greatest country ever. America's the freest country. It's the indispensable nation. It should lead, which usually means rule, the world. How about these ones? Government of, by, and for the people. Voting is important. Our government represents us. And on and on and on. How about rituals? Well, here are just a few that come to mind off the top of my head. How about political party conventions and all of the ceremony and pageantry and choreography and so on? How about political debates? How about elections themselves and all that goes along with it? Here's a big one, one of the most explicitly religious-like ones we have, inaugurations. Or not far behind that, the opening sessions of legislators, including the Congress. How about at least some aspects of things like trials and state executions? How about the celebration of state-sanctioned holidays? I think these and many others are examples we could easily come up with of rituals. Then there are sacred scriptures and texts. And I don't just mean references to God or the use of biblical language or illusion or metaphor in these things, though that's there, of course, but also how very often subsequent generations of Americans have been taught to view these things, often in an oversimplified way, out of context, even if they've read them firsthand at all, which many people haven't. And oftentimes, subsequent generations of Americans impute way more meaning and significance and so on to these sacred texts than even the people who actually composed them did. So let's just throw down a few examples of sacred scriptures or texts. The Declaration of Independence. The Constitution. Lincoln speeches, but not all Lincoln speeches, because of course there's the ones where he says racist things or the ones where he said, hey, if the South just submits to the Union's authority and pays taxes, they can keep their slaves. Those Lincoln speeches aren't part of the sacred texts, but there are two ones specifically that they cherry-picked because they're the nicest sounding and they don't contain anything racist or anything like that. And those are, of course, the Gettysburg Address and Lincoln's Second Inaugural. Another recent one that's entered the sacred canon is the Martin Luther King I Have a Dream speech, and there are many others we could think of. Speeches, documents, declarations, whatever, that people impute depth and significance to that is obviously of the same sort as the way the conventionally religious faith will treat their sacred scriptures. 
Then there are holy places and or shrines, and the state is full of these. Probably the mecca of it all, quite literally, is Washington, D.C., and in particular the National Mall, with all of its monuments to wars and to quote-unquote great leaders, and at the top of it all, the Lincoln Memorial. And then there are lesser ones around the country of various sorts, Independence Hall, Gettysburg, the Statue of Liberty, Mount Rushmore, now the former site of the Twin Towers is this way, and of course national cemeteries, with the number one being, of course, Arlington, which also includes the bodies not just of soldiers, but of the slain presidents Kennedy and Lincoln. Then the state has sermons, and these can take many forms, but a common one in many types of American civil religious discourse have been variations of the Jeremiah, which you can find in usage already back during the days of the Puritans. This is a form of sermon that the Puritans really liked, and that a lot of like old-timey, Old Testament sorts of Christians are fond of. Typically, a Jeremiah would start with referring to a virtuous founding generation beginning the project of building the city on the hill, and then it would talk about how subsequent generations, basically the audience of the sermon, were losing their way in sin and were in great danger, but could potentially redeem themselves if they only mend their ways. And it's very much based on this covenant idea from the Old Testament of the relationship the Israelites had to their God, Yahweh. And this is very common throughout American history as a form of political speech and writing. And I think today where you see it the most commonly is in right-wing media, particularly conventional right-wing media, like mainstream right-wing talk radio and so on. Then, of course, you've got the concept of sacrifice. And this is primarily in the form of martyrs dying in war for the state. Also, sometimes brought up, though not on the same level, not nearly as venerated, but spoken of in like a lighter version of this, is the sacrifice of generations who paid higher taxes and submitted to things like rationing during, for example, World War II. And of course, anytime the government wants to take more of your money, or more of your resources, or whatever, they're always going to talk about it in terms of, oh, it's shared sacrifice for the common good, right? Then there are sacred days, festivals, feasts, etc., and just briefly name a few of these, Thanksgiving, Memorial Day, Independence Day, Veterans Day, President's Day, Martin Luther King Day. And of course, we could probably come up with others as well. Then we have spells, mantras, incantations, prayers, etc., etc., etc. And of course, the Pledge of Allegiance is by far the number one example of this in this category. And there are others as well, and there are even little innocuous ones, or seemingly innocuous, that are dropped into political speeches and used in sort of everyday speech amongst regular people. And they become repeated so much that they are repeated almost mindlessly. And if you ever question these things, you are in trouble. You might as well be walking up to a devoutly religious person and very aggressively saying that their religion is stupid. Let me just give you a few examples of these little tiny mantras and incantations that are all over American speech and writing. God bless America. Thank you for your service. How about this one? Our brave men and women in uniform, often spoken as if it's just one word smushed together. How about things like love it or leave it? Or one that I've seen constantly on bumper stickers lately is one that's just got an American flag and it says, stand up for America, be an American, and countless more. I'm sure we could all come up with them. Sometimes these are campaign slogans, in which case they might not last very long. Then again, they sometimes make their mark on history. New deal, fair deal, square deal, new frontier, great society, hope and change, make America great again, etc., etc., and we could also include things under this category, like oaths of office, these things that magically, magically transform a previously ordinary individual, although in reality, let's face it, they're often in terms of ethics and sometimes even intelligence far, far less than ordinary, but transformed a previously otherwise ordinary person into someone who now has to be spoken of with a special title, Mr. President, Senator, whatever it might be. And... This person can now compel others backed up by the threat of massive overwhelming force. Now that is a magical spell indeed. Then there's music. How about God Bless America, the song? 
probably number one in this category, even a bit above the Star Spangled Banner. And then, of course, there's the third tier, My Country Tis of Thee. And then there are more recent ones like Lee Greenwood's God Bless the USA and Toby Keith's Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. And in the minds of some people who are too dumb to realize it's a satire, probably the Team America theme song as well. And of course, we have sacred histories and narratives, much of the oversimplified, childish, naive, one-sided views of history that people believe, in which the great leaders are deified and idolized, and national mythologies are inculcated, and important questions are never asked. And then, of course, we have temples, which... There are lots of different versions of this, certainly the big shrines, the cemeteries, the monuments, and a lot of like the big government buildings, you know, where they have the columns and the sculptures and all the stuff that's designed to make you feel small and insignificant and to feel the grandeur and majesty of the state. This stuff, these techniques have been known since ancient times, since probably the Neolithic Age, if not at the absolute latest, the Bronze Age. Leaders have figured this out. Clearly, the, the Romans had mastered it. Many others have as well. And whenever there's all this grandeur and majesty and pomp and circumstance, again, I agree with Dave Smith, it's covering up for the fact that there's a con going on. It's covering up for the complete amount of bullshit that's taking place and the fact that some people are getting screwed and exploited for the benefit of others. You need all the ceremony and the columns and all this sort of stuff to keep things camouflaged. And think about this in regard to the idea of sacred sites and temples and so on. I would argue that American tourists very often travel to Washington, D.C. and behave like devout Muslims making the Hajj to Mecca, or perhaps like medieval Christians going to the Holy Land or to the home of some important saint or whatever. It is very much a pilgrimage. Then there are symbols and totems and things like this, and first and foremost, of course, the American flag. Harry Stout writes this in Upon the Altar of the Nation, quote, The American flag stands as America's totem. Soldiers killed in battle are buried in flags. America at war is a nation festooned with flags, in 2005, no less than in 1861. American patriots reflexively invoke the stars and stripes, or old glory, as the object they are willing to kill and be killed for. Critics of America, at home and abroad, who burn the flag, are accused of desecration, literally, a trampling on the divine, end quote. And just think about all of these super intricate rules about how an American flag is to be stored, displayed, cared for, how it's supposed to be destroyed if it's damaged or whatever. And these are as intricate as any Bronze Age or Iron Age religious ritual, if not more so. And then, of course, there's all the rules regarding flags and symbols and ceremonies and anthems and so on regarding hats. And religions, as George Carlin pointed out long ago, are famous for having all sorts of intricate rules regarding headwear. They've got rules about who's allowed to wear a hat and who's not, in what situations one must wear a hat, and in, one, in what situations one must not wear a hat. And sometimes it's the opposite for men and women. In situation A, all men must take their hats off and all women must cover their heads. In situation B, the opposite is the case. So think of things like that in regards to things like the flag and patriotic songs and whatever. And of course, most religions have some sort of priest. It may be called something different, be a little bit different functionally, but basically it's a priest. And in the American political religion, most importantly, of course, are the presidents themselves. As Harry Stout points out, the presidency is the only office in all of America that, by law, can never, ever be vacant, not even for one day. That's how important they think it is. And I would point out that the whole notion of, you've probably heard people say a version of this a thousand times, you don't have to like the current occupant, but you have to respect the office. That clearly is the sentiment of someone who believes that a title, an office, a position is sacred. And of course, the fact that he's the commander in chief and everywhere he goes, they roll out the red carpet. They play the theme music. There's a parade. They shut down a whole city so he can get a burger. This all reinforces it. Speaking of commander-in-chief, the high-level military commanders underneath him are sometimes treated in a similar reverential sort of way as well. And Harry Stout, in Upon the Altar of the Nation, argues that West Point was, in terms of the American civil religion, the first American seminary of it, and that other military academies have joined it since. 
I'd also argue that the Supreme Court justices are treated in this sort of priestly way as well. They come out, they're in their special black mumus, and they go through all these rituals and whatever, and they, they, you know, tear out the guts of a pigeon so that they can tell us what the Bill of Rights actually means, because we're too stupid to read it ourselves. You know, they take auspices and watch the birds in flight, and based on that, tell you what things like Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech actually means. Turns out, by the way, it almost never means what it actually seems to mean. And then, of course, there are the saints, the demigods, the people who are treated as more than human, and that long after they're dead, we build temples and monuments to them and name things after them, and we write little biographies of them that they were these perfect virtuous people that we should all imitate. And it's all bullshit, but who cares? It makes you feel good. So, what happens to the greatest of the high priests of the American cult after they've shoveled off this mortal coil? The answer is, they become treated as saints. And of course, some of the greatest saints of American history include people like George Washington, who more than one writer on American civil religion has referred to as America's Moses, and Abraham Lincoln, that many of these same scholars refer to as America's Jesus. And by the way, I've been referring to Abraham Lincoln as America's Jesus for many years long before I ever read up on the civil religion. And I used to point things out like, look, he had a beard, he died for our sins, and they built a temple to him. What else do you want? So those are probably the highest of the high, but obviously we could name a whole bunch more saints in the American religion, including the other quote-unquote founding fathers. I mean, even the label of, of that for them it is very revealing, that you're taught to think of these as like superhuman beings, and a whole bunch more of the so-called great or near-great presidents. Their lives, especially in popular history, in the books of people like Doris Kearns Goodwin and other kind of mainstream non-academic history writers, and in a lot of depictions of things like the presidents in popular historical TV shows, you know, back when, for example, History Channel even bothered with the pretense of pretending to make history shows. They write of these people and speak of these people in, in almost the exact same terminology as the way that medieval Christian religious authorities talked about the lives of the saints. And like that, Woe be to the person who questions any of the national pantheon or who shares any dirt on these people or anything like that. So I think that gives a pretty good overview of the elements of traditional religiosity that the American civil religion clearly has its version of. And certainly in the lexicon of American civil religion, there are a lot of themes that are directly plagiarized from Judaism and Christianity. Things like the concept of America being a chosen people, a new Israel, a messianic or redeemer nation, a whole concept of Exodus, a whole concept of the promised land, all these sorts of things. And again, the Jeremiah, the idea of trying to live up to the promise of your ancestors. But it's not obviously identical. The American civil religion is not identical with just traditional a la carte Christianity or Judaism. It's obviously taking those idioms and that language and so on and using it for its own purposes. Another thing that the American civil religion has in common with conventional religion is that, like many regular religions, the civil religion has a high degree of flexibility in some of the details of how one interprets it and follows it. In particular, in the different elements of it that can be either emphasized or de-emphasized in the minds of the individual believer in order to make the whole thing fit with their own personality and preferences better. So basically, people Rorschach these things to fit themselves. Just like how different people, very different people in terms of personality and background, can oftentimes read the exact same religious texts and both claim to believe in them wholeheartedly, yet they both come to very different conclusions about their meanings. So for example, someone who has a stern personality can read a holy book and come to the conclusion that it shows them that there is a vengeful deity while another person who has a more kind of gentle and forgiving personality can read the exact same stuff and come away believing that it tells him of a God of love and forgiveness and so on. Both individuals in this case claim to be believing in the exact same deity and the same sacred texts, but obviously their details and conclusions are actually pretty different. And I would argue that that's what's going on in the American civil religion. And one example would be the Constitution, when people bother to read it at all, which isn't very often, that a leftist and a right-winger can both read the Constitution and claim that their beliefs are backed up by it. And 
one can choose to emphasize or de-emphasize certain elements and, and saints within the pantheon of the American civil religion to make it fit them. So, quote-unquote, conservatives might emphasize the militaristic aspects of the American civil religion more and might focus more on painted saints like George Washington and George Patton and Chris Kyle, while, quote-unquote, liberals might emphasize the more egalitarian parts of the American civil religion more and might focus more on patron saints that fit their archetypes better, people like Franklin Roosevelt and John and Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Although, interestingly, virtually everyone, left, right, or center, who drinks any flavor of the Kool-Aid of the American civil religion pretty much worships Lincoln. He truly is America's national Jesus. He's bearded, he died for our sins, and everyone tends to want to interpret them in their own way. And let me just digress briefly and say that the cult of Lincoln was begun quite early, in fact, while Lincoln's corpse was probably still warm, and it hasn't slacked off much since. And let me just read you one powerful example of this, written not long after Lincoln's death by William Herndon, who was Lincoln's former law partner, and I think was at one point mayor of Springfield. He wrote this after Lincoln's death, quote, For fifty years, God rolled Abraham Lincoln through his fiery furnace. He did it to try Abraham and to purify him for his purposes. This made Mr. Lincoln humble, tender, forbearing to suffering, kind, sensitive, tolerant, broadening, deepening, and widening his whole nature, making him the noblest and loveliest character since Jesus Christ. I believe that Lincoln was God's chosen one. End quote. And of course, I should point out the Lincoln Memorial is actually a self-proclaimed temple. Don't take my word for it. Read the inscription above the Lincoln statue's head, where it is engraved, quote, In this temple, as in the hearts of the people, for whom he saved the Union, the memory of Abraham Lincoln is enshrined forever. So anyway, liberal and conservative Americans do have very different emphases, very different flavors, but ultimately they're worshipping the same thing, just interpreted very differently in the details. And it's kind of like how a devout Catholic and a devout Pentecostal might have very different views on almost everything, and yet both claim and believe themselves to be devoutly Christian. And of course, while the devout Catholic and the devout Pentecostal might vehemently disagree with each other over the details of the correct interpretation and application of Christianity, they'd probably find common ground really quickly if they were confronted with an outspoken Hindu. And they might find common ground even more quickly and even more vigorously if they were confronted with an outspoken atheist. In that light, conventional party and electoral politics in America can largely be seen as an argument and a battle between fanatical fundamentalists about the exact meaning of the American civil religion and which faction gets to force its interpretation of that religion on the others. So within all this, where does voting fit in? I think it's pretty clear. In at least a couple of ways, and perhaps more if we thought about it longer. Voting is a dogma. You gotta vote. And it's also a ritual. It makes people think that some sort of almost supernatural thing has happened. And it sets the stage for the magical ritual of the, the inauguration. And perhaps most importantly of all, for any religious ritual, if it wants to endure and be passed on from generation to generation... The ritual gives the practitioner a cathartic experience. But of course, to the non-believer, viewing this from the outside, the catharsis is entirely within the mind of the practitioner. It's not an objective thing. The non-believer in this system and in this cult of the state doesn't believe it and rejects it as false. I'm not personally religious, either in the civil religion sense or in the conventional, traditional, theistic sense. But I would say that if you believe in a god or gods of some sort, then it seems, to me at least, that if you really take your religion seriously, then the American civil religion should offend you as being idolatry, as being a horrific golden calf, whereby a bunch of lying psychopaths and sociopaths pose as the divine representative on earth. And in that light, if you're conventionally religious, you should reject the American civil religion, 
If, on the other hand, like me, you're not religious in the traditional sense, then you should also reject the American civil religion. Because if you reject the overall concept of a deity or deities at all, then how much more vehemently should you be disgusted, terrified, revolted, and horrified by a bunch of lying psychopaths and sociopaths posing as divine representatives on Earth? And on that note, I would like to wish you a happy and holy Election Day for 2016. In the name of the President, the Congress, and the Supreme Court, Amen. If you liked what you heard in this podcast, there are multiple ways you can help this show continue to exist, to improve, and grow. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History Podcast in any way you can. Social media, online discussion boards, word of mouth, whatever. But to help spread the word to people you think might appreciate it. Also consider leaving a review or a rating in podcast venues such as iTunes or Stitcher. And you can help the show financially several different ways. One of the best is to go to patreon.com slash profcj. Patreon, by the way, spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash P-R-O-F-C-J. Sign up to support the show with a per-episode donation. If you sign up there for at least $1 per episode, and more is certainly appreciated, but for at least $1 per episode, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I record, and you'll have access to special, exclusive, bonus Dangerous History Podcast episodes via Patreon that are available nowhere else. So it's a win-win. You get some extra Dangerous History Podcast, and I get some help in keeping on, keeping on with the show. Also, if you're a supporter of the show on Patreon at a dollar or more per episode, you are eligible to join the private Facebook group entitled Dangerous History Podcast Scholar Warriors. By the way, side note, if your name is different on Patreon from what it is on Facebook, please do contact me if you apply to join the group to let me know who you are on Patreon so that I can verify you're a supporter and then I'll be happy to let you into the group. You can go to the show's donate page, profcj.org slash donate, to find other ways to help the show out financially, including PayPal and Bitcoin donations. And of course, you can help the show by purchasing items from Amazon by first going through any of the Amazon affiliate links on my website before you do your shopping. And if you do that and buy anything from Amazon, the Dangerous History Podcast will get a small commission from Amazon at no additional cost to you. One final thing you can do if you want to help out the show is to check out the official Dangerous History Podcast Amazon wish list, where you can order items to help me help the show. And if you do that, I'll thank you by name in the next show that I make after receiving your item. Make sure to check out DangerousHistoryPodcast.com if you haven't already to find the show notes for this and every other DHP episode, which usually include lots of links and things like that. Good stuff. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.